Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone. This is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I've got a uh, second time that I've had this guest on. It's Rick Mum from formerly of NCUA, and we're going to talk a little bit about field of membership. Rick, how are you doing today? Great, Mark. How about yourself? I can't complain. It's a beautiful uh, Friday uh, where I'm at, and uh, you know Fridays always put a spring in my step. So field of membership always puts a spring in my step too, Rick. So let's uh, let's chat a little bit about that. But but first, uh, but first, uh, if there's listeners who didn't hear the first podcast that you and I did on field of membership, if you could just give a little bit of your background uh, at NCUA and uh, and your, which will describe why we're talking about field of membership because of the journey that you took with NCUA. Okay, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I retired from NCUA after about, what, 32, 33 years, about 25 of that. I worked in with field of membership, worked with uh, bylaws, uh, share insurance, uh, charter conversions, and new charters. Uh, I chartered probably about a half a dozen credit unions or so and worked with God knows how many others just talking to them, reviewing packages and walking people through it. So got an extensive uh, background with uh, new charters, converting charters, anything dealing with the credit unions field of membership from inception to uh, closing them down. I worked with uh, for Twenty-five. Very good. Yeah, I know. When I, whenever I have uh, field membership questions, or my clients have field membership questions, uh, I've got you on my bat phone uh, to to help answer that for them, or get you on the phone with my clients. So I appreciate you being available uh, to chat today. And and uh, you know what I wanted to ask you is, I've got up on my screen in front of me uh, something that's a few months old, but it came out since we last chatted. And it's a press release from NCUA uh, from April that uh, references some changes to field of memberships. And specifically, the press release is titled NCUA's New Guide Simplifies and Clarifies Federal Credit Union Charter Application Process. So with that as a tease, Rick, I know that you've spent some time uh, looking at this and working at what NCUA put out here compared to what was out there before. So let's chat a little bit about what NCUA did back earlier this year relative uh, to field membership and how it impacts credit unions. All right. Unknown caller. Go ahead, Rick. That's someone that's trying to sell me an RV. And uh, I'm not even in the market for one, but they like to keep calling me. All right, Rick, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. NCUA revised its, uh, its chartering process. It, I think they, what they did is it, it did help improve the process. It's, to me, it's more, they took the process that was already out there and they did some simplification and rearranged it uh, to, to make it a little clearer uh, as far as what the process is and how it works, which I think are all positives. They put it into three different steps or elements is what the, what's on the website calls it. And 
before you can go to the next step, you have to the one step and they will give you a letter saying you've completed the step, which I think is is uh, a, a good a good change. You clearly know that you fulfilled this element and now you can go to the next element that in the process. So I think that's really good. And one of the things that they did do that's a positive in my mind is the review of the officials they put toward the end just before you chartered, getting chartered, whereas prior you'd review officials up front and new charters, they were constantly changing officials. I remember we'd get in a set of officials for this potential group and you'd run the background checks, you'd do the credit reports, you'd review them, you'd send them your determination letter and three or four of them would be gone and they'd have another three or four more because the process takes a while uh, or can take a while. So they put that toward the end and that in and of itself, I think helps streamline and uh, makes the process a lot easier and clearer and faster for groups. Okay. let's So let's stop there and kind of di- uh dissect those two. So the review of officials they put to the back end. And like you said, I can remember seeing charters that take several years uh, to get off the ground. And it's not an easy process uh, to get a new credit union chartered. And you could have officials that that have life happen, right? When two or three years go by, someone at the beginning thinks they're interested in serving, but they, they move, they change jobs, different things happen to their life. So by the time they actually are ready to launch, they don't want to be an official, so it can end up being a lot of wasted energy uh, uh, part, as part of the process. So focus on, does the field of membership make sense? Do you have the financial ability uh, to support a new credit union? And different things along those lines before you put the cart before the horse. And one other thing I recall, Rick, and I, you might even have been the one who told me this, but a lot of times the passionate people who are there to help get the credit union chartered are not necessarily the same people who are going to end up serving on that board of directors. Is that something that that, uh, that you've seen? Yes, I have. And that's true. You get somebody with a sponsoring organization that has a vision that you know they want to help their employees or members or community, whatever it is. And they'll have this vision and they'll put a lot of time and effort into getting the credit union chartered. But because of their relationship with the sponsoring organization or, or non-relationship or their what they do with the group just takes too much time to actually be able to be a board member or something with the credit union. And back way back when credit union started, you had professional organizers. That's all they did. They would help organize credit unions. And right. that's not so out there so much anymore, but it, it still can be. It's a, Yeah, it's a different world. The leagues played a big role in that as some of the professional organizers. That's a great point. I, uh, I'm glad you, you highlighted that. Now, also stepping back. So you talked about there's three steps or elements in that NCUA will essentially sign off on one piece of it uh, so that you can then move on to the next piece. Let's go into that a little bit more, maybe talk through what the three steps or elements are. And if I'm interpreting that, instead of putting the whole package in A, B, and C, and then constantly 
NCUA going back and asking questions on A, B, and they'll wrap one piece up and then say, okay, you're good here. And then they'll move on to the next one. Am I interpreting that? Or if not, uh, could you clarify? No, that's correct. In, um, and it's four elements. I misspoke. It's four. Uh, okay. Well, we'll add one to it. We'll add one. But yeah, you go to the first step is purpose and core values. What is it that you want to do? What why do you want to be a credit union? What do you bring to the table? Once you get through that, if it's they deem that your your rationale and what you want to bring is beneficial or reasonable, they'll say, okay, we'll go to the next step. And there is some validity to this because I know I took calls from more than one person, especially after what in 2008, when we had the financial meltdown that people that worked in banks lost their jobs and they were calling and they wanted to start a credit union so that they could stay in the financial industry and have a job. And it's like, it just doesn't quite work that way. Sure. Yeah. So, you, have to make, you have to make sure it's consistent with the purposes uh, for credit unions as outlined in the Federal Credit Union Act. Yeah. So that makes sense. Then you go into field of membership and yeah, you have to have a valid field of membership. Uh, you know, there, it, it has to be a group that fits within the confines of the act and the chartering manual. That makes sense. And then the third element, they go into capital funding plan. This is my opinion. I think this should not be in the third element. I think it's, should be the first, basically the first, almost the first element. If, you know, the everybody, and I don't know, I may step on a few toes here, but that's okay. Everybody treats new charters as a process and cure is slow. The process is slow. This iteration is, I don't know how many times they NCUA has gone through to change the process to speed up new charters. You had streamlined expansion. You had God knows how many. And the bottom line is NCUA charters, one to two credit unions a year, three in a good year. And a lot of years we chartered none. And every, and it's not because of cure or what our predecessor, the divisions of insurance, when I started, it's, Everybody works hard. They do a great job. But field of membership is the face of the agency and the engine that drives the agency. And they're the first contact point of the industry. There was nobody that I didn't talk to in the industry from a potential member all the way up to board members. So it's a very busy office is what I guess I'm trying to say. It is a busy um, office. Yes. And uh... and there, and a lot of this is very labor and can be labor intense. So it, yes, things are slow. It takes time, but I guess I'm just trying to give my shout out to it's not staff and it gets treated as if it's staff and it's a process. It's not the process and they keep changing the process and it doesn't change anything, is me, the share insurance fund is what killed the number of new charters. Prior to the fund, the members took 100% of the risk. If that credit union succeeded or not, based on their efforts, and the agency wasn't out anything, they could charter credit unions all day long. 
And if it didn't work out, you're just out some staff's time. With the insurance fund, they became an insurance agency and you got to underwrite the risk. And to underwrite the risk is the group has to come up with money. And with credit unions, that means donations. And someone has to give them that money for the capital. And that's not always easy. And that's what takes the time. And I don't think the agency or the industry or whatever really realizes that. And they don't, they don't really put the capital out there to where in the forefront, like I think it needs to be. Because uh, that, that's what slows down new charters, in my mind. Is- yeah, the, cap- the capital gives you some flexibility to learn how to crawl and then walk and then run as a new credit union. If you don't have that capital, NCUA has a difficult time wanting to charter it. And while, you know, a kind of editorial comment, while the insurance fund from your perspective made it harder for credit unions to get chartered, the flip side of that is that the insurance fund and having that insurance uh, and the safety that provides allowed credit unions to grow to the size that they are at whatever 1.5 trillion or 1.8 trillion or whatever there are. So while the number, well, the number of units has continues to go down. Uh, it's the combination of those two things that make it uh, easier for a, a, a select employee group or a community to seek out one of the other 4,800 credit unions that already exist. And that doesn't mean it's the only path. And like you said, there are one, two, or three new charters that happen every year, but it's a heavy lift. What you're saying is it's a heavy lift. Um, agreed. And I agree with and I agree with you. The insurance fund does a lot of good. And um, the industry wouldn't have grown to where it is without it. No, I, I totally agree with that. I guess my point is just you can have a strong, thriving industry or and you can chart, but on the other hand, it does hinder the ability to charter credit unions. Sometimes I think they want, nobody's ever said how many charters they want to charter every year. They just want to charter more credit unions, but the number's never mentioned. But in the back of my mind, I get the impression sometimes they want hundreds a year or whatever, like prior to share insurance, where you charter 100,000 credit unions a year. The reality is the fund is an insurance company and you do have to underwrite that risk. And that slows down the ability to charter a lot of credit unions every year, good sure. or bad, yeah. whatever. But yeah, I would have conversations <laughs> when I was at NCU, I would have conversations with board members and other uh, senior leaders. But then again, I tended to have a little bit bigger risk appetite than perhaps the average NCUA staff person. In any event, my appetite for risk is more on the willing to take it side of things. It always had been. However, in that regard, you know, I always felt that there should be a certain amount of money that the agency, let's say they decided if we can charter something that has a 60% chance of making it through five years or a 40% chance of making it through 10 years, that means there's a chance there's going to be a loss at the end of that. But in all reality, how material is that loss? And if you do that, and at the end of 10 years, you have, instead of having 10 new credit unions and five of them failed, if you had 100 and 50 of them made it, and there was a cost to the insurance fund of X, I don't anticipate that number is going to be so large that it had a material impact. 
that material of an impact on the insurance fund. And of course, the way the act reads relative to, uh, you know, guarding the safety and soundness and all of that. But sometimes you can put so many restrictions on somebody trying to get off the ground that it's impossible to get off the ground and uh, they feel beaten to submission and they go join another group as opposed to starting their own credit union. And I don't really it was always my position. Yeah, let's look at the risk, but let's not overreact to the risk. But again, circling back, if you have donors that provide a decent amount of capital to get you off the ground, that's as or more important uh, than some of the other elements, which is why you're saying that's something that maybe in your mind should come sooner in that checklist as opposed to later. Yeah. And, and I agree with you that on the fund is... Yeah, that might be a way of doing it is say, okay, we'll allocate so much of the fund for new charters. We'll give them the pass or whatever on raising the capital to do that. Because you're right, you lose 100, you pay out a loss on a $100 million credit union. It's going to be, you're going to pay out a heck of a lot more than if you say, okay, we'll charter 50 credit unions. And we know that at into five years, whatever, we might lose half of them, but none of them are going to be much more than a couple million dollars. We're not really going to lose all that much. And there yeah. may be, and ultimately there'd be members that might be served under that scenario that wouldn't necessarily be served um, in others. Exactly. But so, yeah, so that's just my take throw out there for whatever. Sure. So what else? So what else? Uh... And so after you get to that, you're at that stage and then you start doing in the business plan and getting all your policies together, which is all stuff a new group needs to do, you know, and do, you got to decide, they'll review the policies, the pro formas, all of that. And then all of that is agreeable. Then they start getting into the subscribers and surveying the members, uh, you know, getting getting into the more details as far as what goes into the charter, submitting the forms, getting all of that together so that they can have an actual application, so to speak, to, <clears throat> excuse me. Very so good. then, that, go ahead. Go ahead. So I was going to say, so yeah, so you, you get down to that point, they're getting closer to where yes or no, we're going to be able to grant the charter and go forward from there. Got it. Got it. Uh, any So anything else from before we talk about where things might go down the road, uh, anything else relative to this reorganization and this simplification and this clarification uh, that's worth discussing here? Uh, only other thing is something that gets back to the capital is how much does a new group need? And that's something that I've always thought a little differently than the agency too is, and this doesn't really treat it any different than it ever has, even when I was, is they always say the capital's based X amount based on how much in assets or shares you think you're going to have after the end of a couple of years. If you think you're going to need, if you think you're going to be 2 million in assets, you should have 50,000 in capital or whatever. To me, a new group has no idea how big they are. Every application I ever reviewed, they always way overestimated 
what they were going to do more times than not, I'd have to tell them to scale it back. What I've always thought was a better approach is you can estimate what your expenses are going to be with some accuracy. You can be a lot closer. You know how much rent's going to be. You, you can get that number fairly easily. You're going to have a place, you're going to sign a five-year lease, three-year lease, whatever that amount's going to be. You know what your bond's going to be. You can somewhat estimate your expenses somewhat close. Not exact, but you can get close. And I always thought a better way was you get your expenses for the first three, four, five years, whatever period you want to be. And whatever that's going to be, that's how much capital you need to raise. That's And the agency knows if you think it's going to cost you $3 million to run that credit union for three years. And that's when you think afterwards you'll be profitable. You've got 3 million, 100% of your expenses are going to be covered. And then whatever you earn as far as interest fees, et cetera, towards you get profitability, that's just going to forestall how much longer your capital is going to last. And I always thought that more quantifiable, easier to determine uh, than the way the agency has it set up. That's I like. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, and I'll put that in my terms. Instead of instead of building the package, saying, "Okay, we want to see how big you're going to grow, and when you get there, we want to make sure you're well capitalized or adequately capitalized or at least four percent capitalized." You're saying, "Let me use." the resources of the group that's making the donations to try and get this up and running. And while we might burn through some of that or all of it or half of it or 75% of it over the first few years, that lets us get our sea legs so that we can be operational. And again, going back to my concept of what's the risk if a few of them fail. And if you end up having a handful of these new credit unions, say at the 4% net worth ratio, as opposed to the 8% ratio, yes, might, some of those might fail and have a cost, but some of them might survive and they might be able, it, 10 years later, you might have, again, 20 or 30 of them that survived as opposed to only 10 of them having been chartered. Yes, exactly. And the other thing is, it doesn't all have to be in hard cash. If that sponsoring organization is going to pay your rent or provide you the data processing. You got somebody that's willing to uh, provide that to you. That's included in the expense, but you can take out the in-kind donation or the in-kind payment of the expense, which is going to reduce the amount of the cash. So, you know, if it's going to you think it's going to cost 100000 for rent, for example. That's in the expense, but the sponsor says, we're going to give you this space or we're going to pay for it. There's 100000 worth of capital right there. Uh, you know, no, no cash is there, but that's sure. included as part of what it is you need to earn. So you don't really need to earn as much in get as much and donated actual funds. So it's not all necessarily cash. Got it. Got it. So that, those are great ideas. So let's, uh, let's kind of take that, uh, that uh, concept of new ideas and different things that could be done. If, if you were 
back at NCUA and you had the ability to influence uh, where NCUA might go next with the rules and regulations on field membership, uh, are there any areas for opportunity of things that, that, you know, that what would your top two, three, whatever, how I'm, however many come to your mind, things that you would change in the regulation short of requiring a Federal Credit Union Act change? Because as they say, that takes an act of Congress. But if there were regulation tweaks that you, are there regulation tweaks that you think would be possible to do yet still be consistent with the Federal Credit Union Act? Uh, yeah, it's a shame you put that Federal Credit Union Act out there because uh, <laughs> that's the, the number one thing and it's already being floated out through Congress, so I don't think it's getting anywhere, is allowing any charter to have an underserved area. And so let's go into that. So there is the proposal. I know the trade groups have supported of it. I thought it did have some legs, but again, you don't really know until it gets floated. But walk through which types of credit unions can have that type of field of membership uh, and which ones can't, which I believe are the community charters and why that would be a good fix. Currently, only multiple common bond credit unions can add uh, an underserved area, which uh, essentially is making uh, a multiple common bond credit union, which basically employer groups with associational groups, allowing them to have a, a community. Um, through the underserved areas. So you can kind of, some ways you could say that's a hybrid type charter, but, and they can have as many of those underserved areas, as long as it meets the criteria that they can show they can serve regardless of location, which brings credit union service to areas that don't have it and allows the multiple common bond to expand its field of membership. They're currently the only charter type that can have it. The other charter types, the single common bond, which would just be one group, whether it's like Microsoft or the uh, Catholic Church, whatever, you just have, they're just serving one group. They cannot have it, cannot add an underserved area. And a community charter cannot add a community charter or add an underserved area. So those charter types can't add it. And if the if they could add an underserved area, that would they'd be able to expand their field of membership, diversify. I think it'd be win-win. And it's funny when we first when Congress after the Credit Union Access Act of 1999 passed that gave us underserved area, the agency had the position that single common bond and community charters could add an underserved area. And we did add underserved areas to those charter types. And then whether it was through a lawsuit or to avoid a lawsuit, whatever, I'm not sure the politics behind all of it. They changed to saying, no, the act only said multiple common bond and they grandfathered everybody else. And from that point forward, it was just multiple common bonds. Got it. So Rick, the refresh my memory on the uh, community credit union side, a community credit union can only be based on community. You can't, so you can't add the underserved areas. You can't add associations. Do I have that correct? The associational, is that a subcategory of a select employee group, which is why it falls into the other types of charters? Yes. No, right. Uh, Community is just the community. It's and community, it has period. And period. Yeah. And okay. it has to 
And it has to be contiguous. And it has to be contiguous. Got it. Got it. And it has to meet the criteria. We won't get into the debate of contiguous over water counts. We'll save that for another podcast. (laughs) Um, I think that one was already decided. Okay. We yeah. <laughs> that'll water be water counts. That water counts. All right. That's it. That's the short version. Water counts, everybody. All right. <laughs> uh, love it. Love it. All right. Yeah. So we talked through. First, I said, what would you change other than the act? And you rightly brought me back to say, hey, there's this proposal to the act change. Let's talk through it. We talked through that. Else, uh, before we wrap up. Uh, that you would change either act-wise or regulation-wise, or do you think it's it's uh, kind of been stretched as far as it can be? Uh, it, it, I, it can be it can be stretched. I'm sure that I think that the where, where would you stretch where would you stretch it if you had the power to stretch the regulations in a way uh, that still meets the spirit and intent of the Federal Credit Union Act? I. I I would go on more the community side to be able to, the act just says community. It doesn't, well, they threw in local community. So, uh, you know, that local, you can debate that, I'm sure, all day long. Right. In that regard, what's local when everybody, how, what percentage of people do their only banking on their phone? Yeah, my, exactly. My, my, thought always was you're only going to, the credit union you're going to join is going to be one that is close to work or close to your house because you got to get there. Now you can sign up online at one point, not so much. But after that, you probably never may never set foot in it again. So yeah, the concept of local has definitely changed. But I, I think you could expand this to how large the communities are. I know the bankers think they're too large as it is, but I think you can expand that. Another thing I would like to see, and I argued for and didn't get anywhere, is a state charter that wants to convert to a federal. If they have a community, you have to prove, they have to act, you know, uh, like a multiple or a single, we just bring over their FOM as so you're why can't we do that with the community? Yeah, grandfather what they had as being able to come over to a federal and instead of having them to jump through the hoops like it's a new new community is just Got it. state law allowed it because we'll bring over uh employer groups that state law allows that you couldn't have as a federal. We'll grandfather those, we'll bring them over, but a community we won't. Every and every time you every time I talk to you, I learn a little bit more. I never realized that what you just said there. That's fascinating. So yeah, so I think I, I would do that, make it a little easier for states to convert to federal. Uh, not that I want to promote any war or anything. No, but it's, it's, it's the field of membership issue. It's about having options, and that's what the dual chartering provides. So that's interesting. All right, Rick, this is this has been good. We've gone a little longer than I anticipated, but you always uh, provoke good thought. And, uh, you know, if someone wants to get in touch with you, they can do it through me or they can uh, reach out to you if you want to provide your contact information here. And I'll also put it in the show notes. So, okay. So, yeah. So they can uh, send me uh, an email at info, I-N-F-O at rcuservices.gov. 
All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to frame that up again. Let's, I'll cut that part out. So Rick, if someone wants to get in touch with you, they can do it through me or they can find your contact information in the show links, or let's provide them with your email address here uh, verbally uh, in case they want to write it down. Okay. It's info at rcuservices.com. So that's I-N-F-O at R-C-U-S-E-R-V-I-C-E-S dot com. Or my phone is 480-697-6021. Okay, great, great. All right, Rick, appreciate your time today. And uh, li- thanks, thanks for sharing your wisdom again. And thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. You got it. My pleasure. And uh, to the listeners, I appreciate you listening again to this episode of With Flying Colors. I hope you'll uh, be back soon. And this is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 